Welcome to Indigenising Curriculum in Practice with Professor Tracy Bunder and Dr. Caitlin Barney. Hi everyone, I'm Tracy Bunder and welcome to our podcast series, Indigenising Curriculum in Practice. I'm a Noogie Waka Waka woman and the Professor of Indigenous Education at the University of Queensland. I'd like to start the podcast by acknowledging country and the various countries from where our listeners are located and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the ongoing contributions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to society at local, national and international levels. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Dr Caitlin Barning. Hi everyone. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where we're recording and also where you're listening from and pay my respects to their ancestors and their descendants who continue to have strong connections to country. I also want to acknowledge that where we are recording has always been a place of teaching and learning. I'm a non-Indigenous woman living and working in Mianjin. In this series, Tracy and I interview Indigenous and non-Indigenous academics about how they're indigenising curriculum within the faculties at the University of Queensland. Together, we are going to ask questions to unravel the why, the how and the when of indigenising curriculum. Our theme for this podcast is based on the principle of relationships and our guests today are Des Crump and Dr Samantha Dispray from the School of Languages and Cultures at the University of Queensland. Welcome. Thanks. Would you like to introduce yourselves however you want? Yeah, we're going in Dali. So hello everyone, I'm Des Crump and I'm here on Nyugra land and my family origins are from uh, southwest Queensland, a little place called uh, Durambandi, top end of Gamilaroi Nation. And I'm Samantha Disbray, Des's colleague. I work for the School of Languages and Cultures and my background's in linguistics. And I've worked with languages around Central Australia and now I'm fortunate to work in Queensland. Thanks, Des and Samantha. Um, the School of Languages and Cultures developed industry fellow roles in Indigenous languages and that one of those roles is yours, Des. And this has also been duplicated in some other schools here at UQ. Can you tell us a bit about that role? With the uh, industry fellow here at School of Languages, uh, it, I guess it's building on my past work in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages, um, coming up to over 20 odd, odd years, and it's building on those networks, those relationships that I have with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and, and that work with languages, and using that, I guess, add to the, um, the work here at uh, University of Queensland. Uh, part of a passionate team who share that, that same passion for languages and reviving languages, so that's been great. Building on those networks as well, because it's important that we, um, we have those relationships, those networks with community people, with industry, with other, other stakeholders in language. That's very important. That's why I see my role here at the uni. I think those roles were quite radical for the university mm. and they had to really think outside the box to be able to create those positions. If I could just take up again the work that you're doing in Indigenous languages and ask you to think about what is it that you want students to know about Indigenous languages and language revitalisation? Well, I guess the first thing is that awareness of language and um, the diversity of language across um, Australia and especially Queensland break down those perceptions that our languages are lost or sleeping or gone forever when there's so much great work going out in, in the communities around reviving, revitalising language, bringing them back to, back to their, their strength, um, using them in everyday life. All those things are still happening now. Our languages, while some of them are, you know, might be on, on an endangered list somewhere, but 
it's not really acknowledging the, the resilience and the strength of community to uh, keep those languages strong. So uh, that's what I'd like to see happening with, uh, with other students, especially uh, across the university. Sam, what about you? When we're thinking particularly about uh, non-Indigenous students and international students, we're finding, so Des is coming in and doing guest talks. Um, we're integrating issues around language revitalisation in various of our courses. And there's a huge appetite for it. Students are really interested and there are wonderful resources out there that give Indigenous community members voice. So we're lucky to have those resources. But the other thing that we're working on is a program just for Indigenous language activists and language workers. So I just want to probe that a little bit further. Is there a different set of objectives then for Indigenous students compared to non-Indigenous students? I think that's an important question that we haven't raised in this podcast Mm. series. Yeah, there's a different set of objectives and a different set of needs for different students. So non-Indigenous students can study and have traditionally studied a degree in linguistics and anthropology and Aboriginal studies and, and, and they can carve their professional careers from that position. But Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are carving their careers in very different ways and their pathway into the university is likely to be different um, to those young undergraduate students that make up the majority of our student population. And so the program that we're developing, and Des can talk more about it with our project steering committee, is a really co-designed program designed to be responsive to those needs. The other thing with uh, Indigenous students, it's a lived experience. They're um, they're wanting to reconnect for not so much maybe the academic or, or that general knowledge awareness raising for non-Indigenous students. They're connecting it because it's their, their identity. It's that where, where they come from. And um, so it's a, it's a real personal journey. And I think that's the great thing about the course here. It, it allows for students to, from different experiences to uh, and backgrounds to come in and, and share that knowledge and different starting points. And then through the courses we've, we're developing, um, look at how we can take them on that next part of the journey. So there's a first year Aboriginal Studies course that you came into, Des, and did a workshop with around Yagra language names and place names in Brisbane. So they're mostly non-Indigenous students, but there are some Indigenous students. And you also did a similar workshop for staff within the Indigenous Engagement Division that Tracy and I were both at. Can you talk a bit about that workshop and what you were hoping students learn from that? Place names are uh, a great, I guess, starting point because uh, in in a place like Brisbane and that, and, and even here at the university with all the all the buildings and the sandstone, it's really hard to remember sometimes and or overlook that you're on an Aboriginal space here. There's there's that that connection, that strength of history that's been here for thousands of years, and and often the only only clue to that may be a place name, and so it's a good starting point. It's a nice safe spot where not that anxiety around it all. I don't know much about Aboriginal people and I'm feeling really guilty that I, I don't. Everybody knows a place name. They, they catch a train, they catch a bus, they go past a, a place name on so many different occasions coming here to the university. So it's a, it's a great place to start and a lot of good response from uh, from both groups, uh, especially the, um, the first year students. Um, a lot, as you say, international students who weren't aware of that background and there's so much story behind the, uh, the place names and the students to, to find out or hear, hear about that story was, um, I, I think that's, that, that's a, a good starting point for them, yeah. One of the things that we're doing with this podcast series is we're 
relating it to the design principles that we have been set up for indigenising curriculum, one of those in design principles has been the notion of relationships. We see that as being quite central. So you have an Indigenous languages team. Would you mind to talk about that team and the relationships that are there within that team and maybe the, the skill set as well and how it all comes together? Thinking about that question, Tracy, it's I'm even not sure where to put the boundaries around the team because the more that we do the work we do, the more people join our team um, from all facets of the university. We're finding such um, amazing responses and support. But at the core, there's Des um, and the other industry fellow, Robert McClellan. Robert works also with the Language Data Commons of Australia project. And Robert's very strong in community governance, in management. And so he has a great set of skills that he brings to chair and convene our project steering committee. Between the three of us, we started working together about two years ago, slowly, slowly, tentatively, gently building our relationship, which is sort of models the work of all of the steps outwards that we've taken. So it's all about gradually building relationships, how our relationships have built, how we've become more confident with each other, how the trust is built. So our project steering committee is made up of some UQ staff members, Al Harvey, who's an Indigenous Amplifier Fellow in our school, Gary Tudor-Smith, who is a teaching and research associate with us and a marvellous teacher, Paul Williams, who's a Gamilaroi young fella, and he's really leading the charge in some of our research and outreach work. We've got a great steering committee made up of industry people um, from First Languages Australia, from um, education, from different schools, community groups. And then in our wider school, we've got the support of our colleagues, our head of school. Inside the uni, we have great relationships with, uh, and uh, very respectful ones with uh, people outside the uni who are our, our critical friends who we can go to when we're uh, wanting to check information or um, sound out ideas and use them as a sounding board. And, and that's a great thing. As Samantha said, we all bring different different skill sets, different backgrounds uh, in our language and language work. And so it's it's great to that we're all working on that some that same common goal that wanting to to see, of course, some training for uh, community language workers that's been yeah sadly missing in Queensland here for quite a few years. I wanted to pick up on that notion of relationships just a little bit further. There is a hesitancy and anxiety around being able to develop relationships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Des, as an Indigenous person, can I ask you to give a little bit of advice to those who are listening about what's key for you as an Indigenous person when you're making relationships with Indigenous community? Because we can't take it for granted that we're Indigenous and so it's going to automatically work for us either. And Sam, I'll come back to you as well. Good question, yeah, because sometimes it's assumed, oh, because you're Aboriginal, you know all the answers. And thinking back to my education days when I was a school teacher, this idea of, well, we'll take an education teacher from families from southwest Queensland, we'll put them on the Cape and, and that'll solve all the problems around Aboriginal education. But even then, it, it was a completely foreign context to me and so it meant I had to to build that trust and that relationship with the community and so that they could uh, could see who I was and where I was from that so we, we could find those those common areas where we could connect. Just because we're Aboriginal, we come from very 
very different backgrounds in my work is a lot of, a lot of listening to people, a lot of going in and sitting down and, and talking, but but mainly listening with people and, and giving them the, re, the respect and taking the time to, to get to know them, but also for them to, to see you as a person as well. Because one of the things we used to say, particularly in Aboriginal education, the students or community may not do things for you as a teacher, but they'll do things with you and for you as a, as a person. Samantha, can you throw back to when you first started? How did you make those relationships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? At the very beginning, I moved to Alice Springs and I had a little baby and he was a great magnet and great glue. <laughs> people called him my handbag. He would just sort of <laughs> hang over my arm and that was a great way to connect with other women. And at that time, I was working with women of a similar age, similar stage in life although I was a linguist with a job to do, that division between personal and professional was not a strong one. It's it's a whole person relationship. And those relationships that I have, particularly with those young mothers and now those sons and daughters who are young people with their own bubs, those relationships continue. And so I guess that's, I think there are maybe two things and that is like, I feel that what I learned at the very beginning was that my, my professional and personal selves were not separate and they were as accountable and as invested as each other and that relationships last a long time. It's great to hear about you know those long-term relationships and the importance of professional relationships, but also that that blends into the personal and also the importance of listening in those contexts. You've also been developing and you have developed a suite of short-form credential modules on Indigenous languages that are for Indigenous students. This sounds like really exciting curriculum developments. And can you tell us a bit about the learning objectives and where that work's now going? Our main goal has been developing a, um, a graduate certificate course in Indigenous language revitalisation. The um, Rather than um, tell community, well, if you wait two and a half years, we'll have a course for you, we thought, let's develop some short-form credential courses and um, put those out there, put some research into, into action where they're providing the input into it, see if we're in the right, right tracks for the, the main course. And so, so the modules are based around some of the things that we've identified and talking to, um, certainly with our steering committee and others, uh, what are the, some of the, the key areas that, uh, or skill sets that community language workers need to know, what, like building up your language profile, building your language networks, how do you research, how do you find archival material and then more importantly how do you take that archival material back to your community so that in a way that they can understand they can use for uh, language learning teaching and, and making resources we've had um, three very successful um, summer schools winter schools they've been very very beneficial not just in terms of um, the work generated at the um, uh, the summer schools themselves, the intensives, but the feedback that they've given us about the course, about the university, uh, and again, it's building that trust, that relationship with the community so that we know that we're wanting to check information about, okay, well, are we on the right track with this course? Because we have that current relationship with us, they're using that material that they've uh, developed. Great example, I've been working with the local Yagura community up at Ipswich where uh, Lorena, one of the uh, students from our summer school earlier this year, uh, was just... Oh, grateful and thankful for that opportunity and, and working with Gary and, and others there and, and getting that, that insight into, OK, well, how do, how do I break that language down to um, that linguistic material down to put it into a way that I can work with the community? And so from that, uh, Lorena's put together a, a 10, 12-week course for community members to, to learn the younger language, just everyday language, and hopefully from that course they'll develop the confidence and that to go on to become the language teachers in the, uh, the schools. It's really pleasing to 
and you just feel so proud that people have gone through the course already in, in just that short form course and taken that knowledge and skills and putting it out into the community and, and that, that broader reach already. I mean, so one, one person there, Lorena, is they've had 25 uh, students at the language course. They'll be working in four or five schools doing language classes for, in the Agra language. So there's another four or five hundred people that are, that are being uh, impacted in such a positive way from the, uh, that short form uh, course. That's just amazing outcome from those short form credentials, mm. being able to maintain the indigenous languages within our within our communities. You know, we've talked broadly today, but I just wanted to ask whether you could think a little bit further about indigenizing curriculum and what it means to you. And maybe that's a little bit unfair asking you, <laughs> Tess, in the sense that, you know, you're you're a teacher and you've been, you know, developing curriculum for a very long time. I think what you represent is something very unique for other people within the university. They can learn from you. So if you can just give us your thoughts about what does that mean for you, indigenising curriculum in practice? As far as languages go, it means that decolonisation of um, of language and linguistics because there's, there's so much linguistic material out there for for our languages, but it's, it's inaccessible. It, it needs to be the jargon needs to be broken down. It needs to be viewed, not just this compartmentalised version of okay, well, his his language here, and then we've got spirituality, we've got culture, we've got connection to country, and all that. Al Harvey's doing some great work around uh, with, with looking at Sabai and the um, that holistic worldview perspective of language. How it's it's intrinsic in everything they do and and their way of life. It's not it's not something that can be taken aside and and put into a little box called linguistics. And so. When I think of in, indigenising the curriculum, uh, that, that's what comes to mind, breaking, breaking down that, that barrier around linguistics and making it more accessible because when I started my language journey, one of the things, even though I had a background in, in teaching, I didn't have a background in language and so I undertook the Masters in Indigenous Language Ed through Uni of Sydney just to to do that, to have a look at those language materials, that linguistic jargon, the dictionaries and, and so on that were out there, but understand it so that when I work with communities, I can explain it in community language way, so that they can they can understand it better, but also uh, help them in terms of that learning and and language and looking at how how the languages have been described. That's been a really important part that's come out of the um, the short courses with uh, the work of Gary and Paul, uh, breaking down that linguistic description and then looking at okay, well, what's how do community describe that language? It's a simple point, but knowledge has to have meaning within the university and knowledge has to have meaning for Indigenous students. Samantha, did you want to add anything to that in terms of thinking about Indigenising curriculum in practice, what it means? The School of Languages and Cultures is thinking really carefully and planning out strategies and setting time aside to see how it's going to take the journey of Indigenising curriculum and starting to think about what might that look like for teachers of Russian and Korean. What's appropriate, what fits well, not what's shoehorned in, but what is really a natural fit. And what we're starting to find is the interest in our collegiate, in the work that we're doing, the interest and the curiosity that people have about Des's work and Robert's work is serving as that first step in a lot of ways. I think that the first step for a school and for for colleagues, um, for all of us to 
begin to think about how that looks in our subject area and our discipline is to first build some relationships and to undertake some of that self-reflection. And the conversations that we have and what people are learning about language revitalisation, about language dispossession, about historic factors, about prestige and non-prestige and suppression of languages is making them really reflective. And I think that's our beginning for indigenising the curriculum right that's now. That's great. Just picking up on, on what Sam said about uh, the conversations we've been having with our colleagues in the uh, School of Languages and one of those um, being Zane in the uh, Indonesian area. At our 21st birthday celebrations, I, had, I struck up a conversation with him about the important role of or relationship between the Macassans, the Indonesian Trapangas who came over to, um, to Arnhem Land in that northern Australian area and how the languages... Have, have been blended in some ways or, or in influence each other where there's some Indonesian words that are in the, um, in the language for Yongu and, 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 and everyday use and still used now um, over the last, last few hundred years. And I was very lucky at um, Palima, there was a performance there by um, uh, what they call the Red Flag da- Dance Group and, and this amazing uh, singer who um, they took a, a symphony orchestra back to a little village in Indonesia and they were singing some of the songs that were carried across by the Indonesian and incorporated into the Yongu way of life there and, and the songs. And that was the first time in, in hundreds of years that they, those little villagers had heard those songs again. So I think looking for those sort of opportunities, it was just just, just amazing, yeah. That's a really magnificent story and it just adds to that notion of indigenising curriculum in practice goes international. Thanks so much, Des and Samantha, for sharing some of your really important work you're doing in the School of Languages and Cultures. And thanks for joining us for another episode of Indigenising Curriculum in Practice. Mm-hmm.